Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we kick off with this episode of The Brendan O'Neill Show, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has donated to Spiked. Spiked is free. We have no paywall. Our articles are free. Our podcasts are free. Our videos are free. And we want to keep it that way so that our ideas can reach as wide an audience as possible. And it's only thanks to those of you who donate that we are able to do this, that we are able to have a packed website that is accessible to everyone. If you haven't yet donated and you'd like to, please consider doing so today. One-off donations are great and always hugely appreciated, but even better are regular monthly donations. Giving as little as £5 a month can really make a huge difference and help Spite carry on doing what we're doing. So if you'd like to donate, go to www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button. Right, on with the show. The problem is, my gut instinct now is if someone's called a Nazi, they're probably just misunderstood and, in, and probably correct. Now, that's pretty dangerous, actually, because I think what's going to happen is when the real bad guys show up, nobody's going to care anymore. No, a certain set of people will care, but they will be unable to even find the language with which to fight it because the language will have been so entirely decimated and, and we won't understand where it's coming from or how it got there. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Dave Rubin. Dave is an American commentator, comic, talk show host and author. He is host of the hugely popular Rubin Report, which I have had the pleasure of appearing on, and he's made a name for himself as a leftist who hated what the left was becoming and who now calls himself a classical liberal. He's the author of the new book, Don't Burn This Book, Thinking for Yourself in the Age of Unreason. I had a chat with Dave and his dog to find out more about his political journey. So Dave, I want to kick off by asking you about the predicament we all currently find ourselves in. A lot of the world is under lockdown. Some of us can't even leave our homes without good reason. And humankind faces a pretty serious crisis, the COVID crisis and also the lockdown crisis. And I wanted to ask you, to what extent do you think this crisis could dislodge some of the things that you and me are about to talk about for the next hour in terms of woke politics, the regressive left, identitarianism, all the kind of crap that we've had to face over the past few years. Do you think it's possible that a, a, a proper crisis in which people have had to focus and pull together and think seriously about the world do you think it will help to push aside those kinds of issues that have unfortunately dominated the political landscape over the past few years? Yes, I do. And I am so glad that you're starting with that question, actually, because that's really where my mind is focused right now. You know, one of the things happening is that, as you're alluding to, when the crap hits the fan, you know, suddenly 
Who is going to come up with the vaccine? Who are our trusted leaders? What color their skin is? What gender they are? Sexuality? All of this is complete nonsense. You know, I've seen a couple articles coming out of the UK, and there's been plenty of them here that, you know, we don't want the people that solve coronavirus to be old, straight, white men. I think there was one of those out of Cambridge, maybe, or something, or Oxford. And we've seen our versions of that here, too. And it's like people read that. The average person who maybe is out of a job, who definitely is trapped in their house, who's struggling financially, probably, or even if you're just doing fine, but you're in quarantine, you hear this sort of nonsense and you go, whoa, these are not real problems. And I think that's really what you're getting to. We have hmm. we have been subjected to about five years of fake problems. Uh, as our friend Douglas Murray would say, we're suddenly debating things that the debate had been over for a long time about how many genders there are and all sorts of other stuff. And I think now that people are not only faced with real problems, but, and this is the real silver lining to it, that everyone, I'm sure you too, Brendan, everyone is rethinking their life right now. What kind of community do I want to live in? Do I still want to live in a big city? Do I want to be so reliant on the giant institutions and the food services? And do I want to grow food? Do I have to take some of my protection back into my own hands and not be so reliant on the systems? So I think there is incredible opportunity for those of us that are liberty-minded, that want people to live freely, make decisions for themselves. If you care about personal responsibility and individual rights, I'm seeing lefties on Twitter right now. I mean, blue check progressive lefties who suddenly are going, you know, let's lower taxes because people need more money. And it's like, yeah, where are you guys been? I'm, <laughs> I'm seeing lefties that are suddenly going states rights, states rights, which in America, nobody talks mm. about states rights. But when they do, it's only libertarians that do. Uh, I happen to go into the states rights argument quite a bit in the book. But suddenly, I think because reality has now smacked us in the face, Yes, I think there are some major wins for some of the ideas that we've been talking about. I mean, we'll get into this in a bit more depth in the discussion, but do you think that kind of shift will happen naturally or do we still need to push the kind of arguments you've been pushing? Because I've noticed a similar thing to what you've noticed, which is that on the one hand, people are focusing in a way that they hadn't for a long time. They are thinking about serious issues. They're not obsessing over the nonsensical Twitter spats and how many genders there are and all those things that occupied people's minds for quite a long time. But on the other hand, sneaking through there is that narrative coming through. So we have seen the case in Oxford where a woman's studies professor said, I really hope Oxford doesn't discover the vaccine because then Britain will look good. Heather MacDonald refers to the attempts to racialize the virus in the US where it's being presented as, a, as an issue of social justice. Uh, a similar thing is happening in the UK. So it's still there, of course, all these kind of regressive trends that you and I and others have been talking about. They're still there. They burst through every now and then. So do you think it's the case that it's not that the virus itself will do away with this stuff, but there's an opportunity for those of us who believe in a more liberal-minded politics to, to kind of push further what we're talking about? Yeah. Well, I think the way you started the question was, do we have to push further? Like, will this thing be enough? Will this weirdness with coronavirus be enough? The answer to that, 100% is no. You know, right when you're when you're starting to make some advances in the fight, in the war, whatever you want to call this, just because you get some wins doesn't mean you stop. If anything, that's probably when you have to push on further. 
And to make a bit of a metaphor relative to the virus that we're all dealing with in coronavirus, you know, what I've come to believe about modern leftism, progressivism, collectivism, socialism, whatever we want to call this at this point, is that it is a mind virus. And what I mean by that is it is very easy to catch because it sounds right. It all sounds right. The bumper sticker answer is free this. We love these people. It's all packaged with a smile and it sounds right. So it's easy to catch. And then what is a virus hard to do? Uh, Well, it's hard to get rid of a virus. And in many ways, this ideology is very hard to get rid of. So one of the interesting things is you, I think, have been one of the best at deprogramming people from a lot of these ideas. It's very much, of course, what I've spent the last five years of my life doing. But our work has just begun because as people wake up, you know what, you know what happens here. You know, they wake up, but you don't go from sort of woke to awake in one move just like that. It actually takes a long process and, and not only is the process difficult because you have to shed a lot of bad ideas, but you also have to be willing to traverse new ground where suddenly you're going to look at some conservatives and libertarians who maybe you were calling racist and bigoted and homophobic and the rest of it, and they're going to be standing there open armed saying, hey, let's agree to disagree, let's talk it out, you know, all of that stuff. And it's it's hard to make that move because it takes humility and it takes it really takes knowing who you are in many ways, which is uh, partly why I wrote the book the way that I did, because this isn't just about politics. You know, this isn't just about the political lens you, you view the world through. It's about finding a much wider lens that gives you a, you know, if you want to call it a holistic view of the world so that politics isn't dominating you. You know, if, if politics is the only lens you view the world through, well, then you're really just viewing the world through this endless quest for power. And it ends up becoming like Game of Thrones. I mean, in Game of Thrones, everyone wants power the whole time. And what happens? Well, everybody dies. And the six guys who don't die at the end, they're sitting at a table together, but everyone they know is dead. And I'm much more interested in in helping build a world that politics is a part of it because it's almost a necessary evil part of it. But I want to build a world where anyone that is born on this planet is, is free to do what they want. They just can't do what they want to other people. So let's talk about this virus that you and I are concerned about. Well, we are concerned about COVID-19, of course, but this other political virus that we've been thinking about for quite a long time and which you write about incredibly well in your book. And one of the first things you say in your book in the, in the first chapter where you titled, It's Time to Come Out, where you come out as, you, you put your cards on the table. You explain what your political journey has been and, and how you are, have arrived at the situation you now are in, which is apparently this horrendous, shocking Nazi style desire to have people live as freely <laughs> as possible. Um, yeah. One of the things you say in the first chapter, and this is something that you have said previously as well, is that the left is no longer a progressive force. It's a regressive force. Now, I use the term regressive left a lot and other people do too. In your mind, what do you mean when you say regressive left? In what way do you think the left has become a regressive force in society? Yeah. Well, first off, I'm very proud to say that I'm 99.9% sure I only said the word regressive once in the book. Maybe, maybe, maybe twice. But that that word has been so closely associated with, with me, with you, with Majid Nawaz, who, by the way, is the one who came up with the term in the first place, that I didn't want to bludgeon people with that word. And and you know this, that writing a book is sort of 
uh, it's a difficult process, obviously writing it itself and extrapolating your ideas. But what I found more difficult was that I finished this book in July of 2019. It didn't come out till April of 2020, the end of April. We're, We're now in May. And it's like, man, you have to sit on certain ideas for a long time that you, you know, cause you don't want to give everything away, yeah. you know, before the book gets out. In effect, how did the left go from progressive to regressive? Look, if you told me that progress, I'm a progressive because I want to progress to a world where everyone, regardless of their skin color, gender, sexual identity, all of that immutable stuff, where everyone in a society who's here legally is treated equally under the law, well, congratulations, I will be a progressive. If you can point out to any group of people in the UK, in the United States, or anywhere else that are treated differently by their immutable characteristics under the law, then I would gladly call myself a progressive in that I am trying to progress these people towards equality, which they deserve. And by the way, in the United States, just like in the UK, there have been times where we had laws that precluded people from being equal. So, you know, we had slaves, then we got rid of slavery. That was the right thing to do. Then black people could vote. That was the right thing to do. Uh, women couldn't vote. Then women could vote. Gay people couldn't get married. Then gay people could get married. These are all good things to progress towards because they progressed towards equality. What happened, I think, really in the last five years is that, and this I think is the tough part for for guys like me and you who believe that liberalism is good, true liberalism is good. I think what happened was about five years ago, most of the things that we had to progress towards, we accomplished. In many ways, gay marriage was the last one. And again, if you can point out to me or anyone listening can point out a law in the United States that stops someone from doing something they want to do, equally as anyone else, I will gladly fight that. But I think what happened was as gay marriage passed, it was sort of done. The idea of progressivism was done, but that's in a way when the activists just got started. Because what they wanted to do ultimately was not just free people, meaning free them to be equal under the law. They wanted to, coupled with identity politics, place us all in these groups, figure out what that pecking order is. And as you know, it creates this strange hierarchy that many of us call the oppression Olympics, where depending on if you're gay or straight or black or white, or, you know, the worst thing of all, a white Christian cisgendered male, we put Islamists oddly high, even though they're, they're at odds with everything else that we're purporting to care about, meaning women and gay people and minorities. And they've created this system of competing interests that its goal really is only one thing. Its goal is only one thing, which is to accumulate power. That is why the modern socialists have so much in common with the, with the Islamists. What is the goal? The goal is we want to attain power so we can control people. And the progressives are just the, the patsies in that game because they'll just be the last ones to be beheaded. I mean, this is a pretty obvious game that the Islamists, I think, are playing better, but that, that's sort of a, a separate thing. So when I say the left has gone from progressive to regressive, the move was we were progressing towards equality, we got equality, and then we started going backwards where the people who purport to be the anti-racists are the ones who push racism into society. The ones who tell us that Harvard is going to push down the amount of Asian people they have because too many Asians are getting in there. That's what I would call racist. If you are going to punish a young Asian student because he worked hard and his parents and grandparents worked hard and studied and cared about family and education and all of the things that the American dream is made of. And you're going to say, well, we're going to punish you because we want to help someone else. 
you have gone from progressive to regressive. There's a million examples of this. And all anyone should want in a free society, especially the two that we live in, the UK and the United States, is equal laws for everybody. It's on you to work hard. Some of us are born rich. Some of us are born poor. Some of us are born with great physical skills. Some people are born handicapped. Some of us just have better luck. Some of us make better luck. But the left seems to think that society can figure out a way to equalize all of those things. I view that as incredibly dangerous. All society can do is say, hey, you're equal. Let's get out of your way and good luck to you. That brings me on to another thing I wanted to talk about. One of the things I really appreciated about your book and which I appreciate about your your voice in this discussion more broadly is your recognition that the left used to be a liberal force. Mm -hmm. And in your book, you say the left is no longer liberal. Once upon a time, the left was truly liberal. Now, the reason I think that's an important point, I think it's a point that both the contemporary left, the woke left, forgets, often forgets that it was at the forefront of the countercultural demand for greater freedom, the right to offend, the right to have provocative art, and all those things which the woke left often agitates against these days. And it's also useful because I think there's a tendency in certain sections of the right to presume that the left was always as it is now. The left was always illiberal, Stalinist, against free speech. And I think it's really useful to remind people of that history, particularly, you know, in the US and the UK, the left in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s was a force for liberalism, was a force for freedom. And I wonder, where do you think the shift comes in terms of liberty? I mean, how does a movement go from demanding, in the British case, for example, the left was at the forefront of demanding the right to blaspheme, the right to publish gay erotica, the right to publish, you know, rude movies and so on. How do left-wing voices go from that to no platforming people on campus, demanding the destruction of supposedly racist art? Where does that kind of shift against liberty come about? So I love this question because on this this book tour, I'm getting asked a version of this in, in many different interviews, and I've really had to refine the answer on this, but I do think there is a clear answer. And, and I'd love to hear if, if you agree with my basic premise here. So what happened was, as the progressives who were sort of like liberals on steroids, right? Like they had the right intentions, but then they lost, they, they were like the Hulk. They sort of lost control of it and they were screaming and and everyone else is a racist and they were morally right and and they were attacking their own because their own, you know, weren't standing up enough and the rest of it. What I think what the progressives saw is that liberalism, and this is very hard for me to admit, I suspect it's probably hard for you to admit as well if you agree with my premise, liberalism does have a weak spot that conservatism does not have. Liberals who pride themselves on being open-minded, of being tolerant, of being decent. You know, this is a bit of Karl Popper's uh, The Paradox of Tolerance. That what happens is the progressives saw the soft underbelly of liberalism. They saw all of these people who were open-minded and didn't care if you were gay and didn't care, well, certainly about interracial marriage or just any anything. People, the Liberals that basically just wanted people to be themselves, which I think is a noble cause, obviously. I think progressives saw that and then they said, this is how we get into the system. And they came in and in effect, what they did is they executed order 66 on all the liberals. 
that's a Star Wars reference for those of your <laughs> listeners who, who aren't playing along with the prequels. But that's what they did. They said, now we will eliminate the liberals. And that is why there are very few actual liberals left. In a, for me, look, I can, I can wave the banner of liberalism, true liberalism all day. And I think it makes a little more sense when I'm, a, when I say I'm a classical liberal, it makes a little more sense to people in the UK because you guys have a stronger tradition of it. Especially your left has so outwardly gone bananas there that I think the distinction is becoming clearer. By the way, it's happening here right now. I mean, we, we've seen that. The idea that Joe Biden is supposed to be the last defense of like a, you know, a democratic liberal or something is just, is, is just absolutely patently absurd. But I think they saw that weak underbelly. They went in, they decimated all of the liberals. So they made liberals afraid to say anything, absolutely afraid to say anything. And I would say the difference is, and this has been a very hard conclusion for me to swallow. And I sort of discussed this in the later chapter about Jordan Peterson mm. is that conservatives do have a stronger underbelly. Mm. Conservatives who, from an American perspective, believe in individual rights and the Constitution, which I believe is the greatest man-made written political document that has freed more people than anyone could have ever imagined. That is the underguarding that conservatives have, but there is something else, and this is the tough one for liberals to swallow. There's also a religious framework, a an idea that there is something outside of us that is true, that can stand up to the whims of man. And I think that is why conservatism right now is standing on pretty solid ground. Not only solid ground, but I sense that right now conservatives are living up to their conservative values in a much bigger way than they have in decades in America because they saw the craziness of the left and they actually started acting more the way they purport to act. And let's not forget, th this is sort of what you were talking about earlier about when did this happen with the left. It's not that conservatives and people on the right have always done this correctly, for sure. It was the religious right that was screaming about gay marriage. 20 years ago, it was the right that was trying to ban video games, you know, Mortal Kombat because of violence. So I'm not, I'm not giving them a pass on their history. But I think right now, as it stands, conservatives have a solid ground to blaze a trail for the future. And when I say conservatives, I really mean I mean, anyone that's sort of center right. So libertarians and, you know, anyone, if you basically believe in equal rights in the Constitution, I would include in that. And the, the liberals have just been decimated. We have Bill Maher and he's hanging on by a thread. And, you know, I've been waving the flag, but it's obvious that the people that I, I believe I can forge a future with are all on the right at this point. And even some of my crew, some of the people that you might associate with me over the last couple of years that are thought of as the lefties have become sort of irrelevant. In, in all of this, because if you're just going to be completely afraid of saying the other guys might be okay or might be right, well, then you're going to be left in that scorched earth. And I'm not interested in staying in scorched earth. I want to, I want to blaze a new trail. I want to go to fertile ground. So that's a tough spot for me to admit. I, I wonder if you're sort of in line with that. I think that's a, a fascinating description of what's happened. And in fact, in the UK, there's been a similar dynamic. You know, the, the left is in disarray, has gone completely bananas, as you say, and is a outwardly unattractive to so many sections of society. The liberals are on the back foot. They're very defensive. They have either been subsumed by the woke left or they have just become a minority force. And the Conservative Party has cleaned up, you know, Boris Johnson's Conservative Party, which is quite different to the Conservative Party of old. So there have been changes within the Conservative movement itself, but they have cleaned up because people 
they are the most anchored section of the political class. They have a long history. They are, they're mm. seen by people as steady. Uh, they're seen by people as, you know, willing to push through Brexit, which is very important and willing to stand up for tradition and so on. So they have become the dominant force in the electoral sphere. And I find that absolutely fascinating. And a form of it is happening in many countries in the West right now, where the liberals are in crisis, the left is kind of in the ascendant in the cultural sphere and online, but in the political sphere, the conservatives are kind of coming forward as one of the dominant forces. It's so interesting. I mean, think how unique and actually spectacular and, and, and what it says about humanity that the founding fathers of America left England hundreds of years ago because they wanted to leave a king. We set up a system. You guys continued to reform your system. And then the world sort of came together partly because the internet and everything else. But that right now, the trends that you're seeing in your country, which, as I said, our founding fathers left your country because they were concerned about what was happening. Well, you know, originally they were exploring the new world, but ultimately decided to disconnect because they, they wanted to you know, have sovereignty over their own lives. It's like you and I can have this conversation right now and recognize trends that, by the way, are not just, you already sort of alluded to this, but it's not just the UK and the United States. Australia's last election went right. Most of Eastern Europe is going right. Israel is a really interesting case because their left has been completely decimated. And really, you know, even though they can't get an election right, they keep having elections over and over, but it's basically between the right and the center right. So I firmly believe that if you are someone that lives in the West in a free society, the future of politics is a center-right future. And I would say that for guys like us, Brennan, for guys like us that, that can still have the, the sort of lefty tendencies and that want to use logic and reason perhaps a bit more than a religious underguarding or some other things like that, our job now, we have a new job. I really believe this. I think this is what my next book is going to be about. Our job is now to say, okay, we're in a new spot. It's not exactly where we thought we were going to be, but how can we make sure that this new group of interesting, eclectic thinkers and, and people don't go too far off the other way? Mm. And I think, I think that will be the challenge. I'm really up for that challenge and I'm interested in that challenge. And I'll be interested to see how it plays out for, for you guys in the UK and all over the world. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spike publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free, and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. Just on the liberalism thing, just a, a little bit more, because you are very well known as, as the man who left the left, and you cover that very well in your book, and you are now, you describe yourself as a classical liberal. I think, and you just mentioned there the, uh, the oppression Olympics, and I think one of the things that possibly went wrong with liberalism, I think the shift from liberalism to this woke left, it contains a really important change. Because liberalism was fundamentally about the right of the individual to live as he or she saw fit without 
being harassed by the state, without being imprisoned, without being persecuted. And it was about, you know, leave me alone. Let me carve my own path in life. And I think the shift that occurs over the past 10 years or so towards this kind of woke left is actually a politics which demands constant recognition constant validation. We must all bow our knee to these new identities. We must say, yes, you are a woman if you claim to be a woman. They demand constant recognition of their identity, of their worldview, which actually makes them very illiberal because what they end up doing is they end up demanding the support of the state, demanding the backing of the state and demanding that the moral majority, the people in society, agree with everything they say and give them validation for their life. So I think there's been a really important shift away from uh, the politics of autonomy towards the politics of recognition. And, and one of the movements I think sums that up quite well is the gay movement, the gay rights movement, when it starts mm -hmm. off with Stonewall and the, the riot in New York and the gay liberation front in the United Kingdom, it was so explicitly saying, leave us alone. Get out of our bars, get out of our bedrooms, get out of our lives, let us do what we want. You fast forward 40 or 50 years and you have sections of the gay rights movement, also the trans rights movement, even more spectacularly, who essentially say, come into my life, tell me I'm wonderful, give me validation every minute of the day, otherwise I will fall apart. So I think the rise of identity politics and the demand for recognition of one's identity has played quite an important role in undercutting the autonomous ideas behind liberalism in the past. You've hit so many things there that we could, we could dive into. You know, I mentioned Douglas Murray before. One of the most interesting things that he did in his last book, Madness of Crowds, is he separated the chapters on gay rights and trans issues. Everyone thinks LGBT, these things have something to do with each other. Now, I, I happen to be gay. I'm married to a man for five years. We've been together for 10 years. That's like 30 straight years. Um, <laughs> but, but I have no more insight into what it's like to be a trans person than you do. Uh, th that's just a fact. I am born in the body that, that I'm, you know, supposed to be in that, that psychologically makes up a, a complete person here. The trans thing, I think, has really confused a lot of people. And in many ways, was perhaps the one that was going so out of control right before coronavirus kicked in, where you, if you just tell the average, the average person, just the average person, not even the political person, the average person walking down the street, if you say to them, is there a difference between men and women? Well, we all know there's a difference between men and women. There's a biological difference. There's a psychological difference. We know this to be true. But then when you tell them that they can't even say that, and what the left has done is they've conflated respect for trans people. I have no problem with trans people. I have trans friends. If you're trans, if you if you feel that you were born in the wrong body and you want to undergo surgery or live life as the other gender, whatever it is, I, I, I want you to be treated with respect. I want you to be treated with equality, all of those things. I don't want the government dictating what pronouns I can use, although of course I'll use the appropriate ones if you treat me with respect. But you're right. It went from make us equal and leave us alone to bow to us. Yeah. And, and that is the part that is going to be the hardest to eradicate. And I, I also think that there's a, another psychological reason for this that has happened over the last 20 years, which is if you give every kid a participation trophy and if you tell every kid that they're special and all of these things, they grow up thinking that the world is supposed to be catered to them. It's like saying, you know, the, the basketball game ends, it's the score is 103 
to 78, but you go, well, but I won because I feel that I won. You know, <laughs> I, I, we only scored 78. They did score 103, but you know, I feel good about this and we won and we're going to go celebrate. And I think that that sort of confusion, that how you feel about the world is exactly how the world is, mm. is super dangerous. Mm. You know, I think the best thing that we can do with the world, in many ways, the only thing that we can do with the world is try to help people live the life they want. I have no interest in controlling anyone's life. My neighbor on one side might be a Marxist. My neighbor on the other side might be alt-right. Now, would I prefer they not have those ideologies? And will I fight to expose those ideologies as nefarious ones? Of course I will. But they're entitled to believe what they want in their house. And as long as they don't do it on my property uh, and try to and try to take my privacy or my, my rights away, then then that's the negotiation you have to have to live in a free society. Very well put. In relation to the freedom question, there's a part early on in your book, which I found quite striking and quite poignant as well, actually, in relation to one of the events that had a quite transformative impact, I think, on your journey, which was the massacre at Charlie Hebdo. And I know lots of people for whom that is the case, lots of people in Europe who I have met over the past five years who have told me that that massacre, and more importantly, the response to it from the Western left, had a very dramatic impact on how they conceived of the left, how they conceived of themselves. And you have this incredibly dramatic line in your book where you say, following the massacre at Charlie Hebdo, rationalizing Islamic terror had become a progressive position. So essentially what happened is that there were people, there were, and, and you know, in some cases, influential, well-known people who were seeking to either justify or apologize for the massacre at Charlie Hebdo. Surely they brought it on themselves with their cartoons. It's yep. their fault. If we didn't mock Islam, this kind of thing wouldn't happen. So what did that event tell you about the the rise of sympathy for Islamist extremism, the rise of identity politics, and the crisis of liberty more broadly? So I lay out three wake-up moments in the book. This is the third of the three in chronological order. The other two, very, very briefly, were the the Sam Harris, Bill Maher fight on real time with with Ben Affleck, where he called them gross and racist. It's it's very similar, actually, to what we're about to talk about with Charlie Hebdo. And the middle one was a, a friend of mine, David Webb, who happens to be a black conservative. I was sitting on a panel on the Young Turks, and they're watching this this man who I'm good friends with. They didn't know we were good friends, and they're calling him an Uncle Tom and a sellout and a grifter and all these horrible things. And I thought, wait a minute. You guys purport to be the anti-racist, but you're actually the racists because here's a black man who doesn't think how you want him to think, and you, you think you get to call him all of these horrible things. So Charlie Hebdo, which happened, I believe, in January of 2015, if I'm not mistaken, was was the final straw for me. Because, oh, and you know what? Let's do, let's do the thing that all of us guilty liberals have to do, Brendan. You can do it with me. I want to be very clear. I am in no way blaming all Muslim people. I want every single Muslim person on earth to live with the exact same dignity and respect and under the same laws as anyone else. In no way do I prescribe to the idea that the people who attacked Charlie Hebdo were all Muslim people or anything like that. That's just the stupid thing that we we find ourselves having to say all the all the time and of course of course any truly liberal person believes that what i saw in effect is what you're you're right i think woke up hundreds of thousands if not millions of people that there was this odd thing where charlie hebdo was known 
for doing what, what France has done forever, which is great, rich satire that, that has no sacred cows, where they would have many covers making fun of Orthodox Jews. They would have many covers making fun of the Pope, political people, everything. But somehow in this case, because they had touched something related to Islam, that this was poking the bear. These people, if you poke them, they'll go crazy and then it'll be on you. Well, mm. that actually strikes me as bigotry. If you think that they don't have the same capacity over their minds and behavior that everyone else has. And there was such a strong undercurrent of that with almost everyone across the left. There was virtually no sympathy for the dead cartoonists. There was virtually no sympathy for the, the people that were killed in the kosher supermarket two or three days later. All of the sympathy seemed to be with the Muslim community who, in my estimation, had nothing to do with this. I only was blaming the very people who actually committed the murders, and then the ideology, the set of ideas that led them to do it. This is such an obvious notion, and yet it became impossible for leftists to accept it. And there, there's a moment where I was on the Young Turks where, while we were talking about it, and they're, you know, they're, they're just doing this whole fake virtue signaling game, and one of the hosts starts screaming that all of the covers of Charlie Hebdo, I think he said something like 90% of the covers about Char of Charlie Hebdo were against Muslims. And I said to him, I was like, look, I don't know what the number is, but I am sure it is not 90%. And I think people have done the breakdown since. At some point, it was something like three out of 400. There were far more against Orthodox Jews. There were way more against Christianity and the Pope. And somehow, Orthodox Jews and you know Christians, believers, didn't do this. And had they done it, they would have never got the sympathy that the left was offering in this case. So it was one of, it was one of those where it's like, man, you guys refuse to think about anything, anything in a serious manner. And then what's even more disgusting is what that causes you to do is remove sympathy from dead people. And, and I'll just say one other thing on this, you know, this idea that just because someone doesn't want you to draw something or someone doesn't want you to say something that you shouldn't do it. You know, the same people who don't want you to draw certain things, well, they don't want gay bars. So should we not have gay bars? I thought that was a big thing of the left that gay people should live equally and love is love and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that shows you the, the inconsistency in their ideology. And I also think that's why they're so angry all the time. There are so many ideological inconsistencies in the ideology. And Trump, I think, really sees this. Trump can basically get a leftist to take any position. <laughs> Trump could literally say any. If Trump said open borders tomorrow, they'd be against open borders. I think he understands that what they operate on is this selective pressure emotional system, and he uses it to his advantage. You know, that's just a tactic thing, but we all should be aware that the set of ideas around this thing are deeply dangerous if you want people to be free. I want to ask you about Trump derangement syndrome in a, in a bit, but on the Charlie Hebdo thing and the free speech question more broadly, I think that what you very aptly describe as the sympathy for the Muslim community off the back of this massacre, when, as you say, this was not carried out by the Muslim community, this of was carried about, out by two extremists, I think there's actually a very interesting interplay between kind of leftist sympathy for Islamist extremism or their apologism for Islamist extremism and the continued existence of Islamist extremism. And, and the Charlie Hebdo is a very good example of this because Charlie Hebdo happened in a country in which there are laws against 
insulting Islam, hate speech laws, in which it is accepted by the politically correct sections of society that you shouldn't really insult Islam. That's a bad thing to do. Insult, you can insult Christianity and all day long, oh, all day long. but Islam all day long. you can't. So I think one of the things that worries me most, you know, if you look at terms like Islamophobia, transphobia, and all these new phobias where certain ideas and outlooks are protected from any kind of criticism or protected from any kind of ridicule or joking or debate or anything else, that actually, I think, ramps up intolerance. Because if people, for example, if young extreme extremist Muslims go around thinking it is unacceptable for anyone to criticize my religion, they are going to become more intolerant and they could potentially become violent against those who do criticize their religion. So I actually think there's quite an important relationship between the woke left intolerance and their clamping down on anyone who says certain things and the existence of a broader culture of intolerance and sometimes even violence. Yeah, well, this is what has been coined the soft bigotry of low expectations. It's just these people who can't control themselves. I mean, look, if you were to criticize the Old Testament, nobody would say you hate all Jews. It would be a crazy statement to make, and everyone agree with that. Not only would everyone agree with that, but you could watch any comedy made by Mel Brooks or Larry David or, or Woody Allen or any famous Jewish comic, and you'd have to tell them that they were an anti-Semite. You could make fun of the New Testament all day long, which, by the way, watch any episode of Family Guy which mocks Christianity relentlessly or, or The Simpsons or anything else, and no one in their right mind thinks that you hate all Christians. Yet for some reason, this odd thing has happened where if you criticize the Quran, people think you hate all Muslims. This isn't even something that I, I, I spend virtually no time on my day-to-day life thinking about what's in the Quran. It, it, it's irrelevant to me. But this, this noxious idea that, that somehow these people can't control themselves and then it's your fault if they do something or someone does something in the name of these noxious ideas, you brought it upon yourself. Well, you're right. You're the one perpetuating it. You're the one telling them, ah, yes, you are special. So if we do something that has offense to you, well, you got to do what you got to do. Absolutely. And I was thinking, you know, Terry Jones, the famous Monty Python member died earlier this year. And of course, he directed Life of Brian. And you just think how extraordinary the shift has been over the past 40 or 50 years, because when Life of Brian came out, of course, there was pushback, there was huge controversy, and it tended to come from the more right-wing sections of society. And as you mentioned earlier, from the more conservative wings who shouldn't be given a completely free pass and all the things they've done in in the past, which included mm-hmm. trying to censor certain forms of art. But you fast forward to today, and if you try even to imagine someone making a Life of Brian-style film about Islam or about, or about Muhammad, I mean, it is just absolutely unthinkable, completely unthinkable. Whoa. It's not only unthinkable, but you could even take this away. I mean, this is why these ideas spread in such a horrible way. I mean, you could take a brilliant comedy. I think one of our 10 best comedies in American cinema history, Blazing Saddles by Mel Brooks from, I think, around 1972 or so. You know, they say the N-word in that probably about 70 times. Somebody's done the numbers on it, so someone can Google it and check. Now, his point is not to promote racism. The point is to mock the racists. That's, that's literally the entire point of the movie, beyond that spectacular fart scene uh, around the fire with beans. 
Um, that is the point that they're mocking the racists by using these words. But there, I guarantee you, 100% without exemption, no studio would pick up that script today. So have we advanced toward tolerance and liberalism and open-mindedness, or have we gone the wrong way? I think the proof is in the pudding. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. Subscribe now so that you never miss an episode. And it would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. So let's stick with free speech. You write in your book, you write a lot about free speech. And one thing you mention in particular, which I just think is always worth reminding people about, is the the ACLU's defense of the right of Nazis to march in Skokie in Illinois in the 1970s. And you make the point very well. And it, to me, it's a very obvious point, but it gets lost on people these days, especially on younger people who, who might not necessarily have grown up with that kind of hardcore liberal culture or free speech absolutism, which you describe yourself as, as subscribing to. But the point you make is that the ACLU defended the right of Nazis to march and you support them in having done that, not because yeah. you want to hear anti-Semitic speech, not because you like Nazis, not because you think they've got anything valuable to say or anything valuable to add to contemporary life, but on the basis of freedom, on the basis that if you and I want freedom, then we have to extend that and defend that for everyone else as well. And I think that used to be such a core part of the liberal ideal, you know, right from Thomas Paine through to John Stuart Mill through to George Orwell and others, there was always a recognition that defending your enemy's freedom was a really important way of defending your own freedom. And, and well, that, Brendan, gets, that gets lost yeah. now, I think. Yeah, well, I, I, I know you agree with me on this, but we wouldn't be that great advocates for free speech if we were only defending the free speech of the people we agree with. I think that that Brendan O'Neill should be able to say whatever he wants, whenever he wants, but that other guy, no, no, no. I mean, look, the, the Skokie case is so interesting because the other detail in that is that Skokie, Illinois was home to, I think, the largest amount of Holocaust survivors in the United States. So think how profound, like this was an intentionally inflammatory move, but the ACLU did do the right thing. By the way, the ACLU it's not the ACLU anymore. Yeah. It's now become basically a progressive activist organization, which is very, very sad to see. You know, I've had Nadine Strassen on, who was the former head of the ACLU, who I'm sure you've probably either talked to or you know of. And it's like her day as the defender of civil liberties is long gone, that organization, because what I really have come to believe is that every organization that allows social justice in, it will destroy the organization. That is why we are seeing our systems fail right now. It's why academia is failing. It's why our news media is failing. It's why Hollywood is failing. You turn on ESPN thinking you're going to watch sports and you end up watching politics for an hour. All of these things. I mean, ESPN gave Caitlyn Jenner, they, they said she was sportswoman of the year four years ago. Well, first off, she's been retired from sports for 40 years, but it had nothing to do with nothing other than she's trans. Again, no one has a problem with her being trans. But everywhere that this ideology is allowed to seep in, it will destroy the ideology. So the ACLU is, is but a shell of what it once was. And this is one of those cases. Look, I, I mentioned this in the book. I grew up around Holocaust survivors. I tell the story of my uncle's father, 
who was shot by Nazis. His first wife was killed. He had to abandon his daughter and later kidnap her. And he lived with a bullet in his body for the rest of his life. Uh, and, and I grew up around several other Holocaust survivors. These things don't go away. And, and, you know, they transcend generations, the wounds that then it puts on the next generation and the next generation and everything else. So I don't, I don't hold this lightly. This isn't something that I'm writing at just some sort of intellectual level. This is something that I know deeply. But we have to defend the ability for people with bad ideas to, to say things. It's just an uncomfortable truth that unfortunately I would say today's leftists have completely abandoned. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what lots of people tend to forget is that some of the leaders of the ACLU during the Skokie case were themselves Jews and yeah. one or two of them were actually refugees from Nazi Europe who had come to the United States and were defending civil liberties precisely because they had experienced the book-burning, illiberal, authoritarian, murderous hysteria of, of the Nazi regime. And I think people forget that. That brings me on to my next question, which is about, I think, my favorite chapter in your book, which is chapter four, headline, Don't Worry, You're Not a Nazi. And it has a really great opening line, which is... Um, congratulations, Brendan, you're not a Nazi. Congratulations. I specifically for you. Yeah, congratulations. I have fantastic news. You are not a Nazi. And there were two things I thought when I read this chapter. The first is that I, I actually found it very helpful myself, because you will know that people like us who defend freedom <laughs> are referred to as Nazis, which is utterly perverse and completely ahistorical. But I think a lot of ordinary people who don't necessarily have access to the same kind of platforms as we do will actually find it quite a comforting chapter because it really does take down this nonsense accusation that comes from the woke left so often, which is that anyone who disagrees with them is essentially a fascist or a fellow traveler of fascism. So I liked that basically saying, relax, it's fine. You're not really a Nazi, so ignore it. But I wondered if on the other hand, it's quite important to call out, I hate the word call out, but you know what I mean. It's quite important <laughs> to criticize yes. the, the misuse of historical language. Because, you know, there are anti-Semitic tendencies among sections of the woke left, and this has been well documented in the UK in particular. Oh, yeah. And I think one of the problems is this culture of not necessarily Holocaust denial, but Holocaust relativism where the Holocaust, the uniqueness of the Holocaust is constantly drained away and it's turned into just another event in history. And so one of the reasons I was very worried when Donald Trump was constantly being referred to as a Nazi, and when, when he visited the UK, there were huge marches and pretty much every placard said he's the new Hitler. One of the things that worried me about that was it, it was intended to demonize Trump but what it also unwittingly did was normalize Nazism yes. by presenting yep. it as just another blip in history. So I completely agree with you. And I think it's incredibly important to tell, especially to tell young people who, are, who aren't in with the woke left and are, are finding their political feet. It's really important to say to them, listen, you're not a Nazi. Ignore those idiots. But I wonder if at the same time we have to say, listen, get your historical language right, because this is actually quite important. Yeah, there, there's so many things there. So first off, you know, you're right. It normalizes this idea of Nazi. The way we throw this word around is so, you know, these are the same people who, who hate cultural appropriation. Yeah. Well, when, when you appropriate one of the worst regimes in human history, certainly in modern times, 
to label your political opponents who usually are just fighting for freedom. I mean, fighting for individual rights is the essence of it. Uh, you are, are appropriating culture in the worst sort of way. But, you know, there's something else. It's not just, okay, now they're calling Trump a Nazi, and this is a problem because it's, it's normalizing the idea or it's normalizing the words. It's also that when the real Nazis reemerge, and I don't, I don't mean the guys that are going to wear the swastika, but whatever the next version of the worst sort of totalitarianism, when it arrives, and by the way, I think it's going to come from the left, but when it comes, there will be good people who will be screaming about it but the boy will have cried wolf so many times. And this is what I'm worried about. And I think that maybe belies what your question is. I am really worried about this because every time now that I go on Twitter and I see someone called a Nazi, a public person called a Nazi, I look at what they did. And usually it's that they've stood up for free speech. They said that there are biological differences between men and women. I mean, the litany of things that we've talked about here. The problem is, my gut instinct now is if someone's called a Nazi, they're probably just misunderstood and, in, and probably correct. Now, that's pretty dangerous, actually, because I think what's going to happen is when the real bad guys show up, nobody's going to care anymore. No, a certain set of people will care, but they will be unable to even find the language with which to fight it because the language will have been so entirely decimated mm -hmm. and, and we won't understand where it's coming from or how it got there. The, the interesting part about the anti-Semitic sort of obsession with Israel and Jew hatred thing that, that in your left, in your labor left has gone completely off the rails. And by the way, it's coming to our left here. I mean, Bernie Sanders in every debate, they never brought up Israel once. I don't think it was brought up as a topic once in any debate. Bernie figured out a way to bring it into every topic, every debate, attack Israel. And then he was surrounded by Linda Sarsour and uh, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and the rest of them, which I would say just quickly on the Israel thing, it's like Israel's not perfect. Obviously, no Western country is. If you are endlessly obsessed with the one tiny state the size of New Jersey that's about six miles wide that you can drive across the entire country in half a day that had no natural resources until lately they found some oil, but where, where Arab people and Muslim people have the freest voting rights in all of the Middle East, if you're endlessly obsessed with that tiny tiny speck on a football field. You wouldn't even be able to spot it if you were looking above a football field. If you're obsessed with that, it might have a little something to do with the Jews. That, <laughs> that's what I would say on, on that point. But, but the other part about how this has become so institutional, there is a reason for it. And the reason is that Jews are supposed to be oppressed. And if Jews were oppressed and slaughtered, like the brutal history of the Jewish people, the left would be all about them. But I think for most Jews, and especially Israelis, I'd rather be alive and hated than dead or oppressed and loved. And that also gets to the Israel thing because it's one thing that in America, Jews or in the UK or in the West, that Jews are relatively successful because they've worked hard and cared about education and, and everything else. But the, the Israel thing is, well, it's all of that stuff and they have guns. That's what, that's <laughs> what they really, it, because what it does is it flips the entire oppression narrative on its head. You're supposed to be oppressed. So we like you because you're oppressed. You can't, you can't succeed. And by the way, that's a direct through line from that to what we talked about earlier about Harvard punishing Asian students. You're supposed to be taken down once you succeed. And that is anti-American. And, and I'll even go further. I mean, it's anti-human, actually.
I completely agree. I think the way in which the woke left struggle to place the Jews on their hierarchy of victimhood, I think, is absolutely morbidly fascinating. You know, that because they, they would they would literally have meetings at the women's march. They had panel meetings to discuss where do we place Jews. <laughs> right. I mean, quite literally. And then, of course, they also you know they ban the Jew, the Israeli flag because it has the Jewish uh, star on it. You know, the Star of David, and it's like. Guys, you're always telling us it's just that you hate Israel, not all Jews, but you, you do know that the star has been around for a while. This thing's been going for a couple thousand <laughs> years, right? But yeah, it's all ridiculous. I also think, uh, just as an aside, I wrote a piece a few years ago about Holocaust envy because I think one of the reasons that the Holocaust is chipped away at is because, you know, in, a, in an era in which it is incredibly fashionable and quite yes. valuable to be a victim... Yes. The fact that the greatest crime in history happened to a community that is not necessarily your own community is a problem for some people. And uh, in the UK, for example, we've had a serious problem with over the past few years with Holocaust Memorial Day and, you know, certain Muslim groups and other groups refusing to take part until other genocides were included too. And so that kind of uh, desire to chip away at the uniqueness of the Holocaust experience and to add other experiences, I think, adds to that really problematic climate and that problematic discussion. You guys are a bellwether for what's happening here with our left, really. I want to just keep on the issue of racism for a moment, because uh, one of the things that works incredibly well in your book, which really leapt out at me, is your discussion of the decline of racist attitudes in the US. So attitudes towards interracial marriage have improved, attitudes towards desegregated schooling have improved enormously. You have this great statistic, I think, where a public poll stopped asking a question about segregated schooling because no one wanted it anymore. Yeah, and it was a so very ridiculous. similar dynamic in the UK. In the UK, over the past 40 or 50 years, attitudes to interracial marriage, interracial living have transformed completely. And this is one of the things I find most depressing and dispiriting about the contemporary left is that their insistence that racism is still rampant, sexism is still rampant in the West, all sorts of hatreds are still rampant. And there are two problems with that. The first is that it's just not true. Things are, in, of course, racism still exists. Of course, there is still racial injustice and, and, and racial inequality in the US, in the UK and other countries. But the dynamic is towards equality and the dynamic is in towards a broader tolerance and a broader culture of acceptance. So the way in which they have to go looking for any form of evidence they can find that we are all racist, we are all horrible, there comes a moment where you just think this is driven by a kind of misanthropy. This is driven mm -hmm. by nothing to do with progressiveness, nothing to do with improving society, but just this deadening instinct to say, our societies are horrible and most people are prejudiced. And that's why I thought it was incredibly important that you challenge that. And I think it's incredibly important that people continue to challenge that. Well, look, this is just the sad truth. I did not want to come to this conclusion, but the left as it stands has no ideas left other than this. If they didn't have the idea that Western values, that America in particular, because we're the, the, the tip of the spear of this thing, if that we weren't racist, if we weren't racist, if we weren't sexist, if we weren't homophobic and transphobic 
and all of these things. What, what in the world would the left have to fight for? If you took out all of the references to that stuff from the democratic debates that we just went through, there would be nothing left for them to talk about. They all talk about America being a fundamentally racist nation. You make the obvious but important point. There are racists. I wish there were not racists, meaning I wish we could get the right ideas to flourish so that the bad ideas would disappear. And by the way, I think, I think you and I do a pretty decent job of doing that. You know, I got an email yesterday from somebody in Idaho. He said, I'm a Christian conservative and I've had a lot of hatred in my heart for gay people. And I read your book. And I realized that I've been looking at this all wrong. And he said, I want to, he said, I want to send you an apology and love or something like that. And it's like, you see, you mm-hmm. see guys, mm-hmm. if, if you treat everybody equal and, and you treat people with respect, we can do all sorts of changes here. But the left needs that stuff. They, they need you to believe it. Elizabeth Warren needs you to believe that she's morally right because she's going to hire a trans person to be in charge of this or that, or I, or Joe Biden, I'm going to have a woman vice president. Nobody cares if it's a woman <laughs> or a man. You want it to be the right person. If that happens to be a woman, zippity doo But everything that they have come to believe is broken and it's deeply broken. And again, I, I think you can probably hear it in my voice when I say it. I wish that was not true. You know, when I was on tour with Jordan Peterson, I think one of the most important things that he would say often was that you want In a free society, you want a healthy tension between the right and the left because that keeps both sides in check. It keeps extremists away. You never get everything you want, but you also get not, you never get everything taken away from you. And I, what I do fear is as we've watched the left collapse and liberalism have no basis to fight for itself anymore, short of what we've been talking about here, and hopefully we can reignite it. Look, that imbalance could cause, could cause, we sort of hit this earlier, but it could cause the right to go completely crazy. You know what I mean? If they have no counterbalance, well, then next thing you know, the right could go bananas. I don't sense that. But you want decent ideas to fight each other out constantly in a free society. And unfortunately, we have a lot of decent ideas on the right right now. I don't know any decent ideas of the left. I I genuinely don't. And I don't hear them being spoken anywhere. Dave Rubin, thank you very much. Brendan, you're one of the best, and I look forward to continuing this fight with you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.